This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. How did you feel? How do you feel the uh, debate went last night? Your thoughts on the performance of all of the leaders? Does it matter who won the debate, who lost the debate? Anything out of the ordinary for you? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Henry, thanks for taking the time. Always appreciate it. Uh, always, always wonderful to talk to you. Scott. All right. Any surprises for you last night? I thought, uh, I thought the uh, the premier, uh, Kathleen Wynne, I thought uh, was pretty good. She first time has really publicly acknowledged that. The big problem for the Liberal Party in this election is people just don't like her. <laughs> and she acknowledged it for the first time. Uh, I mean, there have been some people and advisors in her own party have tried to tell her over a year ago, I mean, people don't like you anymore and mm. we're not going to win with you. And, uh, fine, you know, she kept, you know, ignored that, ignored that, and I think she, she's now faced up to reality. Is it? Do you think changing the leader would have changed things for the Liberals? Uh, I think if they had a good young leader uh, a year ago, at least a year ago, uh, I think that might have done the difference. I mean, for especially example, if that, especially if that leader was Andrea Horvath. Sorry, especially if that leader was Andrea Horvath. <laughs> yes. But I, I do think, I mean, they do have, they did have people, and I mean, my, my favorite. I mean, if I, if I was an advisor to them, I, I certainly would have uh, looked very hard at the Yasser Nakvi, the Attorney General. He's young, mm. uh, you know. He, he uh, always uh, on top of everything. He's a detailed man, very well educated, um, and. Uh, Certainly, it would represent a lot of new Canadians uh, as a uh, as a immigrant uh, part of his family who came over from Pakistan, and they and he's been very successful in you know in I think in doing the job. I will I will have to for full disclosure have to tell you he does have two degrees from McMaster hmm. McMaster University, and he was my student uh, as well. So I I know I know him very well. So I am biased, but I do think he would make a. An, an excellent leader of the uh, Liberal Party. But, uh, yeah, she should have gone a year ago. There's other people that would have done a good job, too. Why don't you think they made that change a year ago? Do you think they Do you think they knew how bad it was? Do you think they, they didn't realize the momentum that was slipping away? Well, there's some people, some of her advisors. I mean, publicly, Greg Sabera, who helped lead uh, her, ca- her successful campaign uh, four years ago, said publicly, you know, he might have done it privately before, in frustration, he said publicly, you know, we, you know, we, the Liberal Party has to face the fact, and the Premier has to face the fact that she's, uh, you know, doing something uh, that's good, she thinks is good for her, but really bad for the party, and I know, and people got angry at him inside the party. Tim Murphy, who who is running the election, uh, you know, at this point, uh, one of the key guys running the election uh, for the for the Liberals this time, uh, was, you know, really upset with Greg, uh, who, you know, because he had been such a stalwart, of course, he had done so much to get Dalton McGinty elected uh, the various times he ran, had been finance minister and went back to the Peterson government. But, uh, yeah, and so there, there was there was that voice. And uh, I always, you know, my view has always been inside the Liberal Party, <laughs> I've always trusted, you know, Greg Sabera's advice. And I think, uh, you know, it, it, and I think he didn't, it wasn't too hard to see because if you looked at all the public opinion polls, way over 100 going back three years, there's not a single public opinion poll that showed that the Liberals would be, uh, uh, would be number one, would win the election. That's three years of public opinion polls. And, you know, at, at that point, a year ago, it would have been two years of public opinion polls. I mean, I wouldn't fight against two years of public opinion polls. 
it's it's time to leave and you know and smart leaders do and there's a really great story told by John Robarts the late uh, premier of the province of Ontario and everybody wanted him to keep running again he had he'd been in over there i think for over 10 years and people wanted him to run again in 1971 and they brought him in public opinion polls and they said listen look at these public opinion polls everybody everybody says if you run again we'll 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 win again and he looked it over he's a detail man he looked it over he came to one of the last questions and the question said do you think premier robart should re- be, retire 56% said yes. Huh. He he closed the book and he said, I'm retiring. He said, when a majority of people say I should retire, I should retire. Well, that's like the poll, the forum research poll that came out last week that, of course, was the one that put um, um, Andrew Horvath ahead of, uh, of Doug Ford. Yeah. Uh, and, and and the choices of who, uh, you know, who we wanted for leader. Yeah. And yet when they asked who they thought they was going to win the election, 55% said PCs. Yeah, they said that then, but I think I'd like to see what the what the surveys would say now. I it's going to be interesting to see what the polling numbers are uh, coming out this yeah, week. Yeah, I, I suspect people are going to catch up with the polling numbers and what people, you know, what people are, you know, talking about. But you know, it may be. I mean, maybe uh, you know, there's some. Listen, there's a lot of commentators who thought Kathleen Wynne was able to stop the bleeding last night and that she may bounce back. I, you know, and some people who I really respect have been saying that. I'm skeptical. But uh, but even if she does bounce back, that's just going to eat away at Andrea Horvath. No? That's probably what will happen. Yeah. yeah. In any in any event, I mean, the really big thing, and I I think is essentially what Andrea Horvath had to show that she was uh, she could take on uh, she could take on Doug Ford that he couldn't bully her around. That's why I think she was very aggressive towards him. You know, she didn't want any people to think that maybe she's the right, a right, uh, correct person on her on different things, but that she's weak up against Ford, and she had to really show she could really, keep, you know, go blow for blow for him and beat him down. And uh, I think that's what she wanted to do. Now, some people thought she was rude by interrupting him, but, of course, that's parliamentary debate. She, those mm-hmm. things go on. But she had to show that, you know, she was uh, she was not going to be weak uh, facing him, and, and I think that she did the job on that. And uh, Talk know. about more about the NDP and, and Andrea Horvath's role reversal, because it's obviously a lot easier to be in the opposition on the other side of the fence with no hopes of being uh, elected and, and, and lobbying you know, lobbying things at uh, at, at the party in, in, in the incumbent party or the, right. whoever's leading. Now, obviously, she's the one leading. Uh, how does she react as the fire's coming at her? Well, I mean, I think she did a good job last night. She had everybody was attacking her. I, I think she stood her ground very well against both both of them. Had some funny things to say. Had some cutting remarks to to, to, to say to both of them as well. Uh, you know, and I think uh, I think she did very well standing up. I'm, this is a person who's been in politics and in the legis- certainly uh, you know she was on the Hamilton City Council, but she's been in politics and certainly in the legislature for a long time. She's been a leader for quite you know quite a few years. She's not now doing her third time around as leader. So she's a real veteran. She knows how to deal with these problems. You really see it. I believe experience is always important in these cases. And she shows it. She's got experience, and uh, she knows she knows how to use it. And I think uh, she, you know, when she comes in, you know, should she come in as uh, the premier, I think she has a, she will probably come in with a good team. There is a good, solid group of about Ten, you know, ten to fifteen certainly people who will probably be reelected uh, with her in in her caucus, and the, these people are, I think, they've been around a while. They're they're pretty, you know, 
tough and very knowledgeable people. So I, I mean, I think she's ready to govern. I, I would not, uh, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, when Doug Ford said she's not ready for govern, you know, he may disagree with her policies, but I think she's ready to govern. Uh, certainly Premier Wynne and Andrew Horvath looked the best last night, certainly the most experienced uh, yes. political prowess, that's for sure. Doug Ford just doesn't look comfortable in this scenario. Do these debates win the election? If somebody who's a Doug Ford, who obviously is uncomfortable speaking up and doing that sort of thing against other seasoned politicians. How, how much of a setback is that, or is it? Does it work the opposite? Well, I think in the case of uh, a case of Doug Ford, I mean, he's very uncomfortable in the debate, and he also has a you know a number of other problems which uh, which he has to deal with. He's never sat in the le- in the legislature. He's not very familiar with the policies and the procedures of, of our parliamentary de- democracy at Queens Park, and so he's he is very uncomfortable in that kind of situation. He doesn't. Yeah, so he and he knows it. I mean, he has his slogans. Those slogans, a lot of people like them. There's no question in the early going, the things that he was saying about taxes and all sorts of things, he was getting, you know, a good good numbers of people saying, "Yes, I agree with that. I like that." But beneath that, in terms of two things, first of all, being able to go into details of how he's actually going to do those things and and really and pay for them, but which is another thing. But he he doesn't really, you know, he really just did, doesn't give you the details. And then the other thing is he doesn't know how to tell a story. That is, to take, and this is where Andrea is very good, she will tell a story about a person that exemplifies a problem she's trying to deal with, and then she'll she'll say, well, this, this sort of real-life story that I heard uh, basically, uh, you know, exemplifies the problem we have and what why we have to, you know, deal you know deal with it. And that's that's the sign of a seasoned pro. They can mix, you know, general principles with details, and then with and then give a story that everybody could understand of how of how of why she's doing that particular thing. He he doesn't have that experience to be able to do that, and you know that really showed. Uh, at the end, and you're absolutely you're absolutely correct, Henry. I mean, I, I think you know to pick who won the debate. That's between Win and Horvath. Again, right. just professionally, uh, they just have the pro- the political prowess that that Ford doesn't have. Right. But in the and I think in the end, as as polls have have showed long before the NDP, you know, went out in front, right. Andrea Horvath is by far the most popular leader. Yeah. Uh, even when her party's doing bad in the polls, right. she still ranks. As one of the uh, the biggest leaders, uh, the most popular leaders, in the end, um, uh, do Ontarians vote for the person that they like in Andrea Horvath, or are they still scared of the socialist policies the NDP represents? We all love Andrea Horvath, and everybody knows she's the mo- most likable leader. I don't think the, uh, that's the issue. The issue is when Doug Ford stands up and says something like, if you think the, Ontario, uh, the Liberals have taken uh, Ontario too far to the left... This is doubling down on that. Right. At what point do personalities get put aside and, and, and those days come back for Ontarians? Well, I mean, I think most elections, personality does get put aside. But this is a type of election where it doesn't, where, where two big things happen that, that makes personality of the, of the likely premier most important. First of all, people decided three years ago, we want a different premier. 
So that puts the liberals, and they people feel it intensely. I'm amazed how intensely people feel about this. I'm, I'm quite surprised how intensely people feel about this. But they made that decision three years ago. We want a different premier. So that now leaves Doug Andrea Horvath, and people are really afraid of, uh, some people are really afraid of Doug Ford. They don't really think he's got the depth. Uh, he has a reputation as, of being a hothead. He's a person that, you know, there's not a lot of talk of this, but I think that's there. A lot of people realize, I mean, he was the brother of Rob Ford of Toronto, and no doubt so many people in Ontario were embarrassed uh, about Rob Ford being the mayor of Toronto, and they were upset about that. And now, you know, and so people, and he, you know, he, they just, Say, you know, well, they look at him and say, well, he was the brother that empowered him. And so, and then he makes these generalizations, a lot like Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump will make, you know, really wide-sweeping uh, generalizations that most people say, this, this is not anywhere close to the truth. Well, we see the same thing with uh, with Rob Ford. He'll say, well, you know, Kathleen Wynne was terrible, but Andrew Horvath is going to be ten times uh, worse than her. Well, I mean, that's... You know that that sounds like it's over the top to me, and I think most people would probably see that's maybe big o- over the top. And so, you know, or all business, you know, businesses are going to immediately leave and go down to the United States. And so, people jumped all over him and says, "Hey, are you going to take your business down to the United States? A year that your father left you that." Uh, that if Andrea Horvath becomes premier of the, uh, of, of the province, you know, people know that's not going to happen. Sure, you know, business community will be ups- upset. Some of them will be uh, will certainly be upset. But, you know, we're not going to have businesses that are going to close down and suddenly just take everything down to the United States. I don't think people believe that. So that when he makes those kinds of statements, you know, they, they, they just lose when they look at him and they say, nah, I just don't think he, he acts and thinks like a, pre- a premier that I want to have. And then you can even take a small thing, and I people may disagree with me, but a lot of people want their premiers to look like pre- premiers. And I think the thing that he came in last night, and he didn't have a tie on, I think that was a mistake. I mean, this close to the election, you know, look like a premier, put a tie on, even if most of the time after the election you won't wear one. But, you know, put a tie on before the election, because I just think you've mm. got to look like the premier. Do you think at some point in the next 10 days, the uh, Ontario voter will say behind Andrea Horvath is the NDP, behind Doug Ford is the progressive conservatives? I mean, there's, there's people have been thinking about that. I am. I mean, I've talked to people who are on the who are debating this thing between, you know, should I vote on the basis of the personality of the premier, who do I want as premier versus the party. There's a lot of people thinking about that and they talk about it. And I think though they've thought about it quite a bit and the more they think about it, the more they want to feel comfortable with the premier. They want to have a premier they feel respect for, that they feel is competent, that won't embarrass us, that really as a person is not going to make any big mistakes. And that leads them to say, okay, maybe I don't, you know, maybe I really have a lingering distrust of the party, but I do trust Andrea Horvath and I'm going to go go with that trust. And I think that's that's the decision people have been making so far. Doesn't mean they won't pull back in the last week. That could happen. But I know I think it's just very hard now as as people really look hard at Doug Ford and Andrea Horvath. I mean, there's a comfort comfort level with Andrea and a lack of a comfort with uh, Doug Ford. But I think the lack of comfort that they're finding with Andrea Horvath and the uncomfortableness they're finding with Doug Ford is the same they're feeling with the NDP party. I think that people are, no matter how comfortable they are with yeah. Andrea Horvath, they're just as uncomfortable uh, with the NDP party as they are Doug Ford. 
Yeah, well, I think they have to make a decision. They have yeah. to make a decision. Which, which, uh, you know, which uh, am I going to go with an uncomfortable leader? Uh, yeah. You know, who's the head of the PCs because I like I got more trust in the PCs, or do I go with the comfortable premier, even though I don't really feel all that trusting of the party? That that's the choice. It's not an easy choice. I mean, people are asking me, "What should I do?" I'm trying to sort <laughs> this out, and and I understand. I understand exactly. I mean, I hear this over and over and over again, but I do think. People are drifting to say the prem- the premier is going to be more important than the party. That that's what we've seen so far. Doesn't mean I think they say that when you're talking about liberals and and um, PCs. When you're venturing into NDP country, I don't know. I think Ontarians have a different view, and maybe that's just the fact that I'm 50 plus. I don't know. I, you know, again, I think I think Ontarians will flip back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, between one of the other popular parties. But again, going back to the days of a fringe party, back to the Bob Ray days, you look at hap- what's happening in BC and Alberta right now. I don't know. I don't think Ontarians are there. I'm not sure. But, you know, again, I think this is impossible to call. Oh, yeah. It's very, very difficult to call. And I tell everybody, you know, even though I, I don't, I, I think people will continue the trend that we're seeing in the last week or so. doesn't mean that I'm right. It could be wrong. They could turn around. Uh, you know, basically say, I just can't bring myself when I go to the voting booth to vote for the NDP candidate. I mean, that that could very well happen. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's, uh, you know, I just think people are thinking about this very deeply. And I, I know, I just, I think for the most part, so close to the election, 10 days to go, that I think people have pretty much made up their minds. So you think the NDP momentum is going to continue? I, I think it's going to continue uh, and, and, and not drop off. Now, I do think they have to, you know, they have to keep, they have to have a five-point lead, I think, over the PCs. The reason is the PCs have, in the way the constituencies are arranged and where their vote is, they, they get, they, uh, you know, if, if they have this, if the two parties have the same amount of popular vote, the PCs will do better because their vote is what we call more efficient. It's more, it's more likely to produce a winner in in a riding. So the NDP has to be five points, I think, roughly ahead of the, uh, of uh, in the popular vote of the uh, the PC. So they they got a big job there. But some of these polls show them up there, and they've got to stay up there. They've got to stay five points ahead of the PCs. And whether whether and and of course they have to vote. That's another thing. The mm. NDP people, many of the people are young. We're going to. Many of those people haven't voted in the past. They haven't been all that interested. So those people actually have to vote. So that that's also very important for the PCs to for for the NDP to win. So the PCs can count on their people more likely voting. Can the NDP count on the people who liked uh, want to go vote NDP? Can they count on them actually showing up? Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. That's absolutely interesting 10 days coming up. It's going to be exciting. We'll chat again. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of chatter as we get into the uh, last week, the last 10 days of uh, the uh, election campaign stretch, I guess, prior to the June 7th provincial election. Uh, Over the weekend, Doug Ford promised that as premier, he'd mandate a reduction in the price of beer to a buck a bottle. Wow, can you do this? Uh, And, you know, I'm the first one to complain when I can go to Walmart in Buffalo and buy something for a third of the price that I'm buying here, no matter matter where it's made. Uh, But you have to question whether this is even doable. Let's bring in Dan Malek, uh, health sciences professor, Brock University, the author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking and Post-Prohibition Ontario. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hi, Scott. My pleasure. So what is Doug Ford talking about when he's suggesting all of this? 
Uh, well, for year, actually, I think since uh, liquor control came in, we've had um, sort of a baseline price for different alcoholic beverages. Um, in some places, they call it minimum unit pricing. Some places, they call it like the price floor. And uh, I think it was about around 20, 2009 or so that the the actual minimum price for, and, and it goes by liters of beer, was made, uh, went high enough that you couldn't price a bottle of beer at a buck a beer. Um, so, and it's, it's now, I think it was in um, 2010 or so that a new law was passed that sort of indexed it to inflation. So annually that price will go up if the consumer price index and all these other that's a whole other story that's uh, yeah. a big burr in the side of uh, of alcohol producers where where this will rise incrementally with inflation every year correct yeah but it's not necessarily and i think this is what the uh, the conservatives are arguing that it's not actually the producers that are complaining about this because they because this isn't a tax that creates the minimum price it's a requirement that the um, that the manufacturers price their product at a certain minimum, right? Uh, so, in fact, it's not saying that money, you know, if, if, if it goes up by five cents a case or five cents a bottle, um, that money goes into the government's pockets. It, it's that it goes into the pockets of producers. And I think what the Tories are saying is that, you know, this is, um, this is enriching multinational corporations uh, at, the, at the expense of the little guy beer drinker. So how do corporations, how do uh, even craft brewers feel about this? Um, it, it, it's tough to say. Um, they're not going to say a lot about um, their support <laughs> for this. Um, and, and it depends on different jurisdictions. I mean, this is something that's been fairly quiet in Canada. Occasionally you see these articles about why, um, uh, why is the government so tightly controlling this. And it is a provincial um, rule. Um, the, the other pricing... Uh, this, this affected is, of course, federal um, taxes. But um, in other jurisdictions, like in the United Kingdom right now, there's and, and for the past few years, there's been huge arguments about minimum unit pricing um, to the point where it's gone to, I think, the European court of some kind of economic right. trade court or something, um, where producers are, I think it's the producers who are arguing that they shouldn't be uh, required to make this uh, an issue and and what it, it it's got several um origins one of them is uh concerns about uh, concerns about the um uh over drinking like so right. if you price it high people won't yeah. drink as much but right. there's some evidence to um so that's where a producer might be concerned about what you're not letting us sell our product um but then there's also concerns about um, revenue um, and just about government hand in. Is there in, a threshold? Market. Is there a threshold price that if you put it below this, too many people will drink? If you put it above this, it, they won't. I mean, do they know what that is? Yeah, I don't know if there's if there is one. There's been some great research done by um, a guy named Tim Stockwell out in uh, BC and uh, some other researchers who have looked at different provincial regimes because each province has different rules. Um, so, for example, Alberta doesn't have a minimum uh, unit price, but they do have minimum prices, I think, at the bar level. Um, and then each province. And so they've been able to compare across provinces. And they found that I think data from Saskatchewan has shown that and I can't remember the exact number, but a, a certain um, percentage rise in the price does see a decrease in 
consumption, but I don't know if there's like a magic number, if there's like a cutoff number. I think some, a lot of it is psychological. If you say a buck of beer, people are like, oh, let's figure out. Well, we remember Lakeport here in Hamilton when it was around doing the same thing. And then obviously that came to an end. Yeah, that came to an end for several reasons. It may have been that, I can't remember when Lakeport closed, but it was around the time I think that the the price went above uh, mandated. Yeah, I believe they were mandated that they had to, they, they were told yeah. to, to stop it. Yeah, but then they, but they they were bought up. Talking about manufacturers, they were bought up and mm-hmm. shut down so it, to get rid of that competition. I mean, I think it was Sapporo that bought them up, and they didn't turn around and open up another buck a beer brewery or yeah. buck five a beer or whatever. Right. So, so the, it's a, it's a strange relationship because uh, with manufacturers because it is mandating that they increase their prices. Um, but it also is creating this restriction on um, uh, on com- I get they say this restriction on competition. I mean, you know, if you've got a baseline price, you can still. Um, you it, it, one of the challenges is that you don't that a lot of people don't want booze to be a loss leader, right? So mm. come in, and this is one of the challenges in the UK. But if you still, if you have a, I think it's right now, it's about a dollar twenty five a bottle or so is the minimum you can still really play with numbers that way it's hard to get a beer for a dollar many times on this show dan in regard Mm -hmm. to distribution and and how archaic it has been and and Uh eventually getting beer into grocery stores and and Uh so on and so forth how big an issue is this uh yeah well it's it's definitely one of those issues that catches people's attention there was an article recently in one of the major newspapers arguing you know, why is beer being so romanticized as this um, as this uh, appealing thing, like making it more accessible? It's an issue for some people who want access. You and I have talked, as you said, about you know going to the supermarket, going to the Costco, whatever, and and getting beer. It's also an issue for public health and um, people who are worried about the over access sure. to booze, um, because. If you overly access, if you make it too accessible, the argument goes a lot more people are going to drink. So if you drop the price and make it accessible, um, they see total chaos um, as a result. Um, it's also an issue for the government because if you completely deregulate, and this you know, remember the people who remember Mike Harris's promises to put it in the super supermarkets and in the corner stores, remember that. Um, that didn't happen, right? And one of the reasons was because they looked at the revenue stream of the LCBO and, well, mainly the LCBO yeah. and different ways they get money in and say, you know, we're going to lose a lot of money. Um, so it's... That being said, if they're doing all the licensing in the end, how can they lose money? Because their expenses are down. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, probably because there is a profit line. And if that profit goes to um, individual corporations instead of the government, then... That is revenue out of the government's pocket, hmm. um, which is an ironic twist on the argument from the Tories about, you know, we're, we're trying to undercut the profit margin for corporations by creating a buck of beer again. But then uh, we're going to allow other corporations to profit from sale, selling booze by taking it out of the hands of the government. So it's a strange kind of cognitive dissonance, I think. Is cheap beer a cheap election bribe or is this a valid point? Um. I would be really concerned if people made their decisions on election based upon whether someone was going to give them a buck of beer. Um, what are you they... saying, Dan? <laughs> are you saying I'm screwed up? No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> well, all I'm saying is that if that if that's the tipping point, then um, I, I think that if that were the tipping point, I think we'd see all all uh, um, 
I don't know, Dan, and I've, I've talked about this a bazillion times. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I love Canadian beer. I love American beer. I've always loved Coors Banquet. It's it hasn't been available here for years. Now it is. Oh, is it? And I remember. Oh yeah, I remember stumbling on uh, like a flat of it at the beer store, and it was very reasonably priced. Now it's a it's a million dollars a case. Wow. And I, <laughs> I, I don't forty two. $44, something like that. Wow. The same thing at Walmart in Buffalo is like 19 Yeah. People are yeah. getting ticked at this. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a whole other set of um, issues, right? I mean, yeah, one of the growth yeah. industries in, in beer right now is craft beer, and, and it would be unlikely to see any craft brewer who, any self-respecting craft brewer start selling beer for a buck a beer because yeah, yeah. it's just up and, I mean, as far as a process of, of manufacturing goes the only way you can cheap out in brewing beer is to increase the uh, shorten the uh, fermentation yeah, time and yeah. if you do that you end up with a lot of off flavors and yeah. chemicals and stuff that actually aren't going to make you sick but will make you feel not great right so yeah. so it's a different type of process um, i think people so, yeah. would like to see the relief in the tax not at this end well that's the thing is that this isn't a, an argument for release for tax relief yeah, either, yeah. is it um, and your stuff coming across the border um, is is going to be subject to other taxes and duties and stuff that that um, stuff manufactured in Canada and Ontario isn't <clears throat> right. So, that so could do be you another think? Issue. Do you think this is going to resonate with Ontarians? Um, I, uh, it, it's going to get people's attention. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I think I have a. Our craft, our our craft, our craft brewers happy with this, or would they be upset with this? The small. I don't know if craft brewers would care one way or another because I don't think people who are going for buck of beer are going to be yeah. concerned about craft beer, <laughs> especially since the buck of beer number it's 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 kind of a funny uh, scale they have um, in the minimum pricing. So the min the lowest uh, minimum pricing because there's several alcohol. Uh, percentage categories, right? So the lowest is stuff under 4.2%. Um, and then it's like 4.2 to 4.8, and then something like that, 4.9 above, right? So you might see a buck of beer at under 4.2%. So you're going to get uber light beer. Um, that's not a brand. That's just like super light beer at a buck of beer. Um, or they might have even cheaper than a buck of beer if they want the beer that most people want to drink, which I think is in those higher categories. Right, so so I, I, some craft brewers might like it because there is a movement to the session ales, which are lower um, alcohol and things like that. Hmm. But again, it, their processes and their ingredients are premium, usually at, at the premium level. So they're not necessarily going to be selling bucket beer, but they might be able to drop their prices a bit more. Right, so so in that case, it may make craft beer more accessible. Um, or more viable to people who you know are, are would like a buck of beer, where then they say, "Hey, that craft stuff isn't so um, you know that's just made up the street and it's not as expensive as it used to be." So it could work for the craft brewers as well. How does the legalization of recreational marijuana change this discussion? I know a couple of weeks ago I had somebody on from Beer Canada talking about how the manufacturers are upset simply because of this ongoing tax that that goes up with a fl- with inflation. Yeah. Uh, they're worried they're priced out of the market. Is this going to complicate things for cannabis? Um, this argument about sorry, what about the, legalizing about the recreational price? legalizing recreational cannabis? Will how will that change the alcohol industry? 
Yeah, the, well, I'm not going to try to predict that. I can say that, you know, normally we see... Because they're already upset at the amount of taxes they're going to have to pay, and especially as they're talking about keeping the price of recreational cannabis down. Um, I don't know that it will. I, I don't think it's necessarily the same, the same experience drinking beer and drink and smoking or consuming cannabis, right? So I, I don't, I mean, I know sometimes it's the same market of people. We'll have a beer or we'll, have, we'll smoke a joint or whatever. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can't really answer that question in any satisfactory way for you. I'm sorry. Uh, as we move forward towards the election, do you think we're going to see any major policy changes? Um, uh, Ford talked about uh, opening up distribution of legalized marijuana uh, beyond the LCBO model, although we haven't heard a lot about that through this campaign. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what happened with that. If um, It sort of, of di- polling... it died pretty quick. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if their polling suggested people don't care about the cannabis issue so much as the beer issue, and that's where this buck of beer thing came from. I'm suggesting, I'm suspecting that that is in fact the case, because when parties make these announcements, it's not, well, usually it's not just, hey, guys, this would be a good idea. It's based upon polling numbers and, and data they're getting, right? So they may have seen that when talking about recreational substances, cannabis wasn't resonating in, in any positive way like making more accessible cannabis may have actually become a negative thing for them. And then they just turned to, hey, buck of beer, let's try that one, because people were probably saying beer is too expensive. Any uh, any stats on beer in grocery stores yet? I mean, is there anything to report there? I haven't looked for any, so I'm afraid I can't answer. But I mean, that. I don't think any have been really available. I mean, it's not no. like it's it's you know they've been they've been readily available. Uh, how this has all impacted everything? Yeah, it certainly hasn't been newsworthy. Um, and uh, and usually we would see something if there was any kind of interesting blip. I mean, the the original rules around these things did require assessment of sales at nearby beer stores, um, and that was also with LCBO selling twelve packs now. Um, and to see that, you know, no one's profits are going to be adversely affected. Um, all I've seen is more beer in in supermarkets, beer and wine in more supermarkets. So that's so it seems to me that, you know, maybe all of these other controls that were put in there were just sort of to appease a concerned public. And then we'll just see things open. Do you think we'll time. see the any of these rules or regulations change with a new government? Um. It depends on who the government is. <laughs> Do you, uh, well, well, let's presume, uh, okay, since Doug Ford brought this up, if Doug yeah. Ford gets elected, do you think we're going to see more of this? Do you think we're going to see more open distribution? Uh, that seems to be his interest. Um, but like I said before, we've seen conservative governments um, or conservative parties promise this. And then when they actually look at the books and see what the revenue streams look like, it. it it doesn't. It has. They haven't changed it. The difference now is that there has been that door open into supermarket sales, right? So it may be that the next step is to increase the um, application and licensing process for more supermarkets, which could um, drive revenue into the government if there's a if there's a cost associated, which there is with getting these licenses. So it may be that they see that as a different type of. Um, revenue source at the same time saying, well, look, we're making it more accessible to everyday people. Right. You know. So it, it, that could be the case. I, I, I don't know the specific numbers, and I was trying before the um, our call today to, to look up some of the numbers, but like you said, it is kind of hard to find these things. 
All right. Uh, I can't let you go without asking you uh, the latest on recreational marijuana. Obviously, we're at the end of May right now. They were initially talking about uh, July. That, of course, uh, I guess bumped back, but th- those dates really haven't been uh, solidified in any yeah. way. Anything more on how this is rolling out, what the concerns are, when it will happen? Will we be ready? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean... I think that the provinces, the delay has helped the provinces set their um, systems up. Uh, a province like Ontario that's going through an election, um, obviously there may be some some hiccups there. Um, but I haven't heard what's been going on in uh, in the consultations, other than some of the stuff we've talked about before with things like the retail, um, the homeowners or the um, home builders associations concerned about this, which. Uh, concerned about home uh, at home uh, growth of, of cannabis plants. It seems to be that things are just sort of chugging along at the legislative level, and uh, really some of the other big issues across the country have been taking the um, taking the attention of the media for sure. Uh, any more on a date? Initially, this was supposed to be July first, and then tentatively, yeah. although they say now that they never actually said that. Then they were talking about <laughs> August. Yeah. Any yeah, idea? Yeah. No, and, and the reason uh, being that the government can can call it when they like once it's once the law is passed, then they have to pass a an order in council. This is basically like the prime minister and the governor general getting together and saying this is a date. So I don't think they're going to make any kind of date announcement until they've actually seen the the, the passing. So the, when when will we say, oh look, that's where the pot store is going in the mall. What, like uh, locations <laughs> or like? Uh, well, we have seen some announcements, and I think that, like is there uh, are these are these gray structures starting to appear that you know with no names on them that that's going to be. The... You, you should get out on on the uh, the Twitter feed there and have people start sleuthing this out. It would be really interesting <laughs> um, because I, I mean I think one of the the reasons we haven't seen anything on that is because of the election. Yeah, is because the last thing the current government wants is to release more um, locations and then have people in that area freak out and right. say, oh, my God, it's, you know, a thousand meters from a school. Right, right. right? So there's that. All right, Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. Dan, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Police, we talked about this. Police uh, in Toronto no longer at the scene of an explosion that occurred in a Mississauga restaurant last week. Uh, After the van attack in Toronto, this, of course, uh, heightened uh, lots of uh, people's, uh, lots of tension in and around the city. And, of course, uh, wondering what the motive was, what the reasoning is behind all of this. Let's uh, get an update. Ross McLean is with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. He's with us now. Ross, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Yeah, on this hot day, I'm glad to be with you on a hot day. <laughs> so what, uh, did they hold this restaurant longer than usual, police? Uh, what's the normal process? What goes on in a scenario like this? Well, what's absolutely key is forensic evidence to this. So obviously they held it long enough to do the examination they needed to do. Because it's a fairly simple uh, layout, it appears that the device you know, would have gone off just inside the, the doors that you walk in, and it's an l shape. It's, it's not overly complicated to be able to collect and go through it. So they would have gone through and gathered all the information that they need. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, 
uh, our forensic teams across the GTA and down to Hamilton Way are all getting pretty good at processing scenes like this because they've done them before again and again and they're trained for it. So they would have garnered all of the information that uh, they needed before they released it. Uh, as you mentioned before, uh, the suspects, it appears at this point, came in through uh, the front door. We see the, 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 the security surveillance video of them coming through the front doors. Do we know anything more about their movement once they got in uh, those front doors? From what you were saying before, it, it pretty much all happened within uh, the lobby entrance where you go into the restaurant? Well, that's what appears uh, from my reading of where the way the explosion took place, because you couldn't see any other damage on the other glass that was nearby or, or some such thing. But we do know because of the video capturing the two of them coming in, uh, we do know how they came in and how they went out. And apparently uh, when they went out in their own little planning, they had a little, they, they ran away from the scene across a field uh, and then uh, behind a, a new building and jumped into a vehicle to take off. Now, fortunately, the police were aware of that. And uh, they've recovered a glove at the scene that fell from one of them, which is evidence, and uh, excellent series of footprints from them that were in the mud as they took off. And uh, who knows if they've got other video of the vehicle and things like that. So I think the police, uh, if this is a game of a poker, it's not three cards, it's like uh, seven cards. They've got, <laughs> they got a number of cards I think they're looking at here. Now, and, and we've talked about this before, were, were these two in the restaurant when the explosion happened? Or did that, they bolt that, before it before the explosion? Yeah, that we're not clear on because one of the one of the key things you look at on, in these sort of uh, attacks is how the device is wired to detonate. How sophisticated is it? Was it something as simple as, as I said, this occurred after the May twenty fourth long weekend? It was just something built uh, with a fuse that you just light that could blow up because it was made from fireworks, or is this something more sophisticated where there's a remote? Uh, cell phone uh, part in there that could be detonated remotely or or something like that. Uh, we don't know. Uh, we know they ran, so they, they probably weren't standing right beside it when it went off. Mm. Uh, so how the bomb was constructed is going to be a key piece that they're looking at, Scott. Do you think there's more video than what we are seeing of them actually coming? The, the, the video that we've seen is them coming through the entranceway of the, re, of the restaurant. Do you think there's any video of them or what happened inside the restaurant? Well, people, uh, you, you can always be surprised of how much video there is. If like the police only showed that one angle, there could very well be another couple of angles inside of the the restaurant that the police didn't use to show for what they were seeing. For instance, it's not unusual for a lot of restaurants to have a camera near the cash at the front or the bar near the front where the money is and those sort of things, as well as just the ones watching people coming out. There's the possibility of there is cars with dash cams that were there. Um, there's always, I mean, that area. If you're Ontario and Eglinton, there's lots of cameras and lots of establishments around there. So I'm, I'm hoping that they got some more. So nothing more on the device itself at this point, Ross? Uh, not that we're hearing. The only the only part I want to say that's interesting is, you know, the night that the explosion took place, I believe they, you know, we know that there was 15 injured. And at the time they were saying three critical. And then uh, later the next day, they were all released. And people were saying, well, hold on, how come, you know, the police uh, and, and the paramedics announced three critical, and then all of a sudden they're out and walking the next day? My understanding is, is with the paramedics on scene, there was a lot of uh, what they called penetrating wounds, which would be like, let's say, shrapnel, if right. the bomb, in fact, you know, was made with nails or ball bearings or something like that. So the problem is if you're... Uh, a paramedic, you look at someone and you find one of these little tiny 
holes or tears in the skin. You don't know how deep it went or if it damaged anything on the inside. So they, out of an abundance of precaution, treated people that had wounds like that, I take it near, you know, internal organs and stuff, and treated them as critical until they were able to clear them. So that was very, very good of the paramedics there. Um, We heard that although this restaurant has been released, the owners are going to keep it closed for a while, but they have other locations. Any reason to believe that these other locations could be targets? Well, the owner, apparently, uh, of, of the chain, keeping a very low profile, has, has made a posting to his Facebook page, uh, thanking uh, everybody for the outpouring of support, uh, giving his, his sorrows for the people who are injured, and his, the fact that he's glad that they're well. He also indicates that he's had, and he's completely cooperating with, and they've had long interviews with the Peel Regional Police, which is good to know, that he's not giving any information on. However, he does say that he's not aware of any motive for why this may have taken place. So that leads me to believe we don't have any other, you know, current fears for the other locations. The fact that nobody or no organization or anybody hasn't claimed any responsibility for this at all, obviously police are not looking at this as any sort of terrorist situation. Well, we haven't seen a classic, if you will, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or something like that. However, as we've talked about before, we seem to have all these in-between groups that are taking and using terrorist-type activities, even mm-hmm. though they're not uh, that tied to it. You know, with the with the Antifa, some of the... the, the remember, it was a PETA person that shot up Google headquarters, right? Yeah, because yeah. they were upset about that. And so we've, we've, we just saw, I think, in the States the other day, there was a restaurant that was firebombed by, by a vegan uh, radical group for doing it. So the question remains as, as to what the motivation was behind this. The police may or may not know. I, I hope that they're a little bit closer to that. They're just not telling us while they're trying to tighten the noose on this and get, get to who these two people are. Could this just be a couple of goofs looking for something stupid to do? You know, uh, the, the, the MO doesn't fit. Or is this just way too serious a crime for that? Because you talked about before that, you know, possibly this could be a homemade device in a paint can with some fireworks and such, uh, yeah. using as, as the gunpowder and so on. Uh, I mean, could this just be a bad joke? Well, you know, if when you hear about on May 24th weekend, if you heard about a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old who got wounds to their hands and their face because a paint can went off when they were playing around, that's a joke, that's a mistake, that's, that's misadventure. But when you see two people who've got, uh, who are wearing gloves, wearing disguises, they have similar hoodies on, going in and having a, a device that I'm sure they would have experimented somewhere with before, and that may be one of the clues that helps police lead to them. They would have had to practice building it. That this is this was premeditated, and for the two of them to do it together, it's not a lark. The, the two of them had an intention behind, for whatever reason, they felt it was worthwhile to go risk life and limb. And this was not just leaving a signal, Scott, by firebombing in front of a place or spray painting it or something like that. I mean, this was a bomb put in where there were people, you know, doing birthday parties. Uh, yeah, a family restaurant. So, yeah, and they knew what they were doing when they did that. So, you know, the intention was either to cause mayhem, injury, or death, you know, and, and we, we don't know what it is yet. You know, of interest, there was apparently the Indian consulate had put out a hotline saying, we'll help anybody who has any problems. And apparently there was some concerns about that from some of the Sikh community saying, hey, you can't do that here. You're overstepping your boundaries. And, and Peel Regional Police says all the investigation is going through us. We're running this investigation, nobody else. So... 
even though the police are looking after it, it's tickling some international uh, problems as well, I think. It seems that if these events aren't, uh, or I guess even if they are semi-terror related, after the initial danger's over, everyone kind of goes silent. We never really found out what happened with the Aaron Driver uh, case um, in uh, Western Ontario, uh, the van incident, which happened in Toronto uh, just before this restaurant explosion. Uh, again, once it seems to be um, uh, separated from some sort of organized crime or terrorism, we don't seem to hear what happened. Scott, as always, you're an astute follower of the facts. I mean, there's another case that took place in York region here, just north of the city, where a guy had on a suicide vest, supposedly, and ran into a bank and was holding up the bank and said he wanted to meet with, uh, I think, Justin Trudeau at the time, and they had to bring in the tactical people and brought him down, and you know what? There's never been another word about what the cause was for that or the motivation or why the person was doing it. So there does seem to be a, uh, let's say, a pattern within the, <laughs> the police reporting on this or how we cover it, where when something goes on like this, it just disappears into a vacuum. And, it's and like that, unless I, unless it is like some sort of catastrophic event where lots of people are, are hurt or killed, it just kind of disappears. Yeah, and, and even so, though, I mean, you look at the, uh, you know, the van attack that took place. There's still no clarity on Man. what was going on there. There was, I mean, everybody attributed the motive based on a Facebook post that was supposedly possibly put up by the person. But the police haven't confirmed that that was put up by him or that was accurate or that was the reason. And we've heard no more about it. So we still don't really know. The police have not said what any motive is for that van attack, even though we're we're tending to call it now saying, oh, that wasn't terrorism because of the Facebook post. And no one's called it that yet. So it is an interesting conundrum for me, one that I look at as I look at the pattern. Uh, do you expect to hear more information on this case? Because it doesn't appear that there's any sort of terrorist affiliation. Will this one go silent too? Um, you know, I don't know that it'll go silent. I, I honestly believe in this one. I think that the police, if, if I'm a betting man, I'm betting on the police finding something on this. Because there, there, there's just too much evidence that has been left here. And uh, these people who go around doing this sort of thing, they're not as smart as what the police have to be able to trace them. So I'm thinking between the fact that there's good video of them, uh, there's potential DNA evidence from the glove that was left, they're going to have footprints and shoe sizes, they'll have camera stuff to look at, and who knows what else. Cell phones might have uh, captured uh, someone uh, using a cell phone in that area. So I, I'm, I'm really hoping that the police can come out and tell us in, in another week or so, Scott, that they've got something on it. I don't want this one to just disappear. I'd like to see some resolution on this one. And the thing is, uh, and much like the van attack, that we don't seem to see a motive at this point, but we certainly know that both were premeditated and well-planned. Correct, which tells you there is a motive. Somewhere there is a motive, and that motive is going to be very telling as to who else or what else is, in, is involved. You, you want to know if it's terrorism, if there's some other group that's recruiting and doing something, or if this bombing in Mississauga is somehow tied to something like like an Antifa or you know an anti-Indian uh, or an anti-vegan uh, you know, somebody or something. We need to know which groups are rising up that think that they can do this, that they can go out to the public when they're having a party at night and be able to cause terror. I, we need to know if this was completely isolated or somehow tied to some ideology, because if it is, 
we could expect that we need to be able to defend ourselves from other attacks. Uh, it, it just seems, and again, as you mentioned, premeditated and walking into a full restaurant with families. There, there's apparently birthday parties going on in there. So the police must want to get these people off the street ASAP. Oh, yeah. And you, you do not mess with uh, Peel Regional Police. You know, they've got, they've got a few detectives there that are, that are beyond great who just will not relent. I mean, they're unbelievable, some of them. I've, I've known at least one there. I'm not going to start naming off the ones that are great, but uh, he, he will haunt you to your grave and back, and he will find you and bring you out before the courts. When do you think we're going to hear more on this? Or- I'm, I'm hoping in a week, Scott. I really hope in a week. I hope they'll come out and say that uh, something that they're investigating further. They've ruled certain things out, but they haven't ruled other things out. And, uh, you know, the very fact that they're not really coming out and asking for a whole lot of public help that tells me that they've got cards to play that they can run down without having to reveal to the bad guys what cards they have and what they've picked up. So for me, the fact that they're not asking more for public help and showing more things and asking more questions, that to me means they're, they're, they're on the trail. Hmm. And interesting how that's different than uh, the van attack where they captured uh, uh, the perpetrator and have information from him. They don't have information here, but yet obviously are on the track. I, I think they're on track. I do. I don't think you can, there's, there's so many anomalies that come up when people operate like this, uh, that they don't realize uh, what it is they're leaving behind. And uh, as I've told you before, and I won't go into some of them here, there are multiple ways that the police have of tracking people down based on physical evidence left, that's left behind the scene. There, there's techniques that police have developed over the decades uh, in working that I, I'm not going to go into them, but they've got, they've got things they can run down. So, things are not as simple as people uh, think. The police have some tech techniques here. All right, can't let you go without getting an update on the MacArthur case, the serial killer in the gay community, and the uh, Barry and Honey Sherman case. Anything there? Well, all we know is apparently they've let loose the dogs to go search properties and, if necessary, dig. We haven't heard anything about uh, any strikes. What we do know uh, with the MacArthur case is, though, that they've started to have a pretrial hearing. That's where they've sat down with the judge and the defense counsel, and they started to hash out how big a problem this case is going to be, Scott, because there was a recent Supreme Court decision that says, generally speaking, you're supposed to go from charge to completion of the trial within 30 months. Right. So the, what yeah. they're looking at now is and we've talked we, about this, like this could go on forever. When do you try the guy? Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, they're looking at, are we going to split this up and just try them on one or two? Are we going to try all eight at once? Or are we better just to pick the good ones and go with the good ones? And, and there's a lot of consideration that goes into that. Right. I mean, the defense trial would rather have them all separated. Uh, the Crown would rather have them all have them together. Uh, or just do a few, the public and the victim's families would want to see every one of them prosecuted, right, if it was their loved one that was lost. Sure. And there's so much evidence here, forensic evidence. It's probably, it is easily the biggest forensic evidence case in the history of Canada, I will guess. And it will take six or seven months just to do the disclosure, you know, on, on the uh, forensic evidence. So uh, that, that's the big problem right now, I think, is how it's going to go through the meat grinder of our justice system. Uh, to get the charges dealt with, and they'll pursue on the other ones. And what about the Sherman case? Anything there? Nothing. It's quiet. Yeah. We've, we've had no other developments on it. There's what does it little... say to you that it's that quiet? Especially for something this big. 
Well, once again, I think there's, I think it's to everybody's benefit, to the police's benefit, that they're not talking or saying anything because they don't want it necessarily brought up because of all the controversy that was around the case. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what to say about it. It could mean they've got no leads, or it could mean that they're running down a massive amount of leads and they haven't found one that really sticks yet, and they're just going to have to continue to go through them and continue to work it, continue to work it, continue to work it. Uh, I'm not sure where we're at. I really hope we get an update on that at some point. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.